Welcome to the Early Childhood Intervention Family Voices podcast. Our podcast today is being recorded on the lands of the Jajawaring people, and I wish to acknowledge them as traditional owners. I'd also like to pay my respects to their elders past, present and emerging. The Family Voices podcast is a series of conversations with families and professionals. We hope the podcast builds on families' knowledge, skills and confidence when navigating early childhood supports. The podcast is also an opportunity for families to share their individual stories as a family with a child with a disability or developmental delay. This podcast series is brought to you by Early Childhood Intervention Australia, Vic Taz. To learn more about the podcast and our organisation, please visit ekiavic.org.au. Hello, I'm Kerry Ball, and it's my pleasure to introduce Maya to you today on Family Voices. Hi, Maya. Hi, thank you for having me today. Oh, pleasure. Great to be meeting with you. Uh, we only met a week or so ago, and then you told me, Maya, that your main role is as a mum, but you've got a whole lot of other things going on in your life. Can you tell us about that? Yes. So I always say my main role is being a mum to two beautiful children. I have a five-year-old Lloyd, and he is my special needs baby or my swan baby, which is syndromes without a name as he has a rare genetic condition. And I have a three-year-old who is Elsie, my little toddler, not so toddler. Um, my main employment, I suppose, is my automotive retail that I work part-time in. I study uni full-time. So I'm doing a Bachelor of Health Science um, with majors in disability and inclusion and exercise science. And then hopefully I finish that this year after three years and hopefully move on to a master's of genetic counseling, which I feel like I would be hopefully good at being that I've got some lived experience in that. I also volunteer with two amazing organizations. Uh, the first one is association for children with disability, and I am a, what they call a community champion. So promoting their workshops, I go to a lot of events as well and it's just trying to bring a community together of all different types of disability. Then I work as a volunteer with SWAN, Syndromes Without a Name, and I'm a peer support facilitator for Southeast Melbourne area, not the full Southeast, but where I live. And I have about 30 members on my group, but overall it's all families coming together with children that are undiagnosed or have rare genetic conditions. Yeah, and I'm a CAG member as well, Consumer Advisory Group member, which just helps with where we're leading and what we're doing throughout the year. Yeah. And really eye-opening to be part of an organisation that is on a smaller scale of everyone else but trying to make the biggest difference. Yeah, that's impressive, Myra, about the range of things you're doing. And I understand that, that you're learning um, from them, but I love that the organisations you're involved with are really valuing lived experience and even the language they use, you being a community champion and the peer support work, it's great to hear about that. So I just started my own business. It's based on, again, my own lived experience doing adaptive clothing for children, and that is based on the fact that there's not really a lot in Australia for children that wear orthotics or have feeding tubes or ostomy bags or prosthetics. Wow, you're you're quite a doer, Maya. <laughs> tell us then about being a mum. You say that's your, your main role. Um, can you tell us a bit more about your, your children? So I'm a single mum now, so it's been a bit of a transition over the last year of not 
being with my husband. He's still quite involved with the children, which is great. On a day-to-day, it's, you know, running Lloyd. He just started prep this year, so that's very exciting. He goes to a special needs school four days a week. So on a Wednesday, he doesn't go to school, being that we have to fit in so many therapies. We have feeding therapy or speech pathology, and then we have exercise physiology, and then we have OT or physio alternating weeks. So it's a pretty hectic Wednesday for myself and Lloyd, and Elsie attends daycare four days a week. So I get one day solely with her to try and spend some time with her, although she is now pending physio and will be speech as well. But hopefully, fingers crossed, only for about 12 months, just to catch up to her peers. My activity is based around them. So that's why I wanted to do a small business and work from home as much as possible and just be able to attend appointments with Lloyd. Yeah, yeah. So your business, your studies, your employment, your negotiating around uh, Lloyd's and Elsie's needs then? Yes, definitely. Yeah, that's quite a handful for you. Can we take a step back a bit, Maya, and hear a bit more about Lloyd? When were you first worried about his development? So Lloyd was a typically developing baby as far as we knew from my pregnancy. Everything was fine, but it was more at the six-month mark when you couldn't even sit him up with like propping him up with pillows or anything. So I was more concerned probably at six months and I brought it up with my maternal child health nurse who said we, we could wait a little bit, just, you know, not all babies can sit at six months. So we waited until eight months and booked an appointment with the maternal child health, which is kind of, you don't normally see them eight months, but we had the option to see her at the eight month appointment. She was like, Oh, I'm not too worried, but I was still like very concerned yeah. and I was 18. So it was kind of the whole new mum, young mum spiel, baby will be fine. So although he was a very happy baby and my maternal child health said that, that he was very happy and he was gaining weight and he was feeding correctly, but then he was sleeping 23 hours a day. You couldn't get him to engage in activities because he was so tired, but she wasn't concerned. So I was, I was, um, I went to my GP and got a pediatrician referral to get an appointment and I was told 18 months minimum weight for Monash, which is our closest hospital. And I wasn't going to take that. So I found a private pediatrician. And when we saw the pediatrician, Lloyd was 11 months. So you'd been worried about him from six months and now at 11 months you got to see a pediatrician through your own determination and and worries about Lloyd. Yeah. Yeah. So the pediatrician diagnosed Lloyd with global developmental delay. So he had some kind of diagnosis and a few other things such as farsightedness. Um, And then she was amazing. She referred us to every single person you could think of, neurology, cardiology, ophthalmology, everything. There was just so much. And that took over sort of the next sort of six to 12 months waiting for all those different specialists and all the tests came back inconclusive. There was nothing physically wrong with my child, which I was happy with, of course, but then we're left with no answers. Mm -hmm. So in between that, I'd applied for NDIS under global developmental delay, already had our own physio because I was paying privately for one physio. Then I moved on to another physio who we still have today. Yeah. So we'd already been through everything, but we still had no formal diagnosis or understanding why his delays were quite prominent. You could tell that he was not anything like his peers. He didn't learn to sit until he was two and he really struggled. But again, no one was really worried because he was happy and gaining weight. Yeah. Yeah. But you were worried and you kept persisting. Yeah. I was very concerned. I was like, he can't even sit. 
He can't pass lumpy food. He was kind of aspirating on water. It was this constant like circle of no answer. I went back to my GP and they were like, we've done everything we can think of. And I was very annoyed because I was spent so long trying to find these answers. You mentioned um, earlier when you were talking that you had a sense of new young mum spiel, you said. What what do you mean by that? I was told, I can't even tell you how many times, some doctors specifically said, you know, you're a young mum, it's okay, like it'll be fine, don't stress. And I I don't know why that even had to come up in the conversation. Um, And as a first-time mum, regardless of your age, I think you're picked on a little bit that you're so worried sometimes about your child, which 100% you are sometimes worried over nothing because you're a new mum. You don't know what's going on. Your baby's crying for hours on end. It could be anything. It could be reflux. It could just be they're tired, anything. But I made it blatantly clear that I had already gone through all of the options before going to a doctor. Mm-hmm. But it was if I didn't bring evidence to the table that I had done all these things, the doctors wouldn't even talk to me. They'd be like, mm-hmm. yeah, go try this, go home. It sounds like you had a sense that they were making assumptions about you because you were young and because you were a new mum, but that you knew Lloyd and you kept on persisting to try and better understand what was going on and get the support for him. Am I understanding that correctly? Yeah. I even had to take my mum to a neurology appointment because the neurologist just would not listen to me. So you took your mum so that you could be heard. Yep, and I prefer not to take my mum when I'm a fully capable adult myself. Yes. It was, yeah, I had. To, I took her to a couple of appointments with me and you definitely noticed the difference between my mum coming with me and going by myself. Yeah, yeah. It's an interesting strategy that you use just to be listened to. Can we flip that a bit, um, Maya, and hear from you about when professionals were listening and working with you well so you mentioned the pediatrician was fantastic for example and you've got a physio that you've stayed with for many years what is it about those um, professionals that make it work for you I guess the most imperative thing they do is they take my ideas and reasoning on board whether they agree or disagree and work on the basis that I'm Lloyd's mum and I know him best and at least consider that what I'm saying might be correct. Mm. So, for example, when I went to my GP, I went to him and I said, I want to go to genetics at Royal Children's. And he said, okay, why? And I listed every single test and specialist we had seen. And then I listed every single delay and why I'm concerned. And he just said, I understand and referred me. So just having that ability to like openly listen and communicate, whether I have evidence or not, though, just my own opinion of being a mum and my concerns with Lloyd, that is definitely the most imperative, like you listen to. Yeah. And well, respecting your expertise as a, as a mum. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks. That's, that's been a really nice example um, to help me understand that, Maya, because it's listening's part of it, isn't it? It's almost like the mindset of the pro- professional brings to it that they see you as a, a mum who knows their child and has come for some help. Yes, and I feel like whether you've got a special needs child or not, a lot of parents 
probably have the experience of going to a GP, knowing something's not right with their baby or their child and the GP like blowing it off as yeah, yeah. they're just crying and you, you're like, I know my baby. And then sometimes it's nothing and sometimes it's quite sinister what goes on. And then you have this great like anger towards the professional and it's not always the professional's fault, but as a parent and especially a first-time parent, it can be terrifying. Mm. So you need to be listened to or at least some validation that your feelings are being heard. Yeah, yeah, validation's a good word, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, it's more than just acknowledging real real validation. Yeah, I get it, Maya. And you said that you think there was some of that um, because you were a young mum, you said you were 18 when you had yeah. Lloyd. Do you think that was a, an additional kind of barrier for professionals listening to you? Yeah. Even when I went to doctors, they kind of just, they didn't want to listen to what I had to say, but then I've had friends have babies around the same time that are older than me, thirties or so. And they've had absolutely no issues. And it could have been the exact same doctors as well. Mm. And some of them like were the same doctors. So I know it, it's really hard to describe just the demeanor they use when they talk to you. They don't really, they definitely don't validate you whatsoever, but they definitely just brush off any concerns you've got. Yeah especially if the doctor doesn't know you. And I think having a regular doctor or pediatrician that you trust and that, you know, listens to you when you are concerned is so important. Yeah. Isn't that trust so important? I agree, Maya, the trust that you have in professionals is just so, so important, whether it's a pediatrician or a GP or, or therapist or the educators at, at childcare, trust is just critical, isn't it, to working well together? Yes, and it's hard to find. Yeah, and I'm really sorry to hear that your experience has been that it's hard to find in addition because you were a first-time mum and a a young mum, that phrase that's used, a young mum. Yeah, and that phrase was used a lot. It's still used a lot now. I'm like, obviously I'm a young mum. But back 50 years ago, that would have been the average. It's just that the average (laughs) is 30 years old to have a child. So it's In in other cultures too, there's there's not um, universal norms around all of that. Yeah. What what about Elsie? You you mentioned that um, you have had some concerns about her development, but, but very different from Lloyd. Yes. So when Lloyd was diagnosed, I was 26 or 28 weeks pregnant. I always forget now with Elsie. So we got Lloyd's diagnosis in the December and we didn't know at the time whether it was a de novo gene or not. So that's whether I carried the gene mutation or passed it on. And that's terrifying when you're pregnant. That must've been such a worrying time. Uh yeah, and I had the option to do amniocentesis testing specifically for the IQSEC2 gene for LC to see whether she had the same mutation. But I chose not to have that, being that I'd already had a bit more of a risky pregnancy. So yeah. I waited and I haven't had her formally tested for it either, being that I kind of want to, but we just haven't had to. Yeah. A chance yeah. I will, but I'm not. It's not on my to-do list on a day-to-day, so. Yeah. I like hearing about the way you're making choices about those things, Maya, that, that there's no one way to do all of this. You've decided for yourself about things like amniocentesis when you were pregnant and following up with genetic testing for Elsie. Yeah, I think it's a really yeah. important um, factor that you also need to put yourself in there, so it's great to know 
like for Lloyd, a diagnosis was imperative just because I really need to know what was going on and whether yeah. we get a diagnosis out of it or not. I wanted to know that I had done everything I possibly could and that it wasn't my fault. And that was definitely a major impact when we found out that he had his genetic condition. And a lot of parents feel like they've done something wrong. And being a young mum, I, I had family and friends telling me, oh, did you did you have a drink in your first 12 weeks? Did you not eat well enough? Did you drink too much coffee? Did you not exercise enough? And I worked full-time while I was pregnant as well, 40, 45 hours a week. It was like two hours of travel on trains and buses every day. And I worked quite extensively as well. So they, a lot of people judge me in that fact. Yeah, yeah. But and that, and that transferred as guilt, feelings of guilt for you or worrying about whether you'd caused. Yes. Yeah. I've seen a lot of kind of just despair. Like I just didn't know what to do. I was very confused. Oh. I was trying to do everything possible, you know, finding all the specialists and everything, but then just trying to make sure that it wasn't me that did it. I was yeah. going through all these answers, driving myself crazy. You know, my husband was Brendan. He was good at the time saying, you know, it wasn't me, but. You don't know, even especially for children that are undiagnosed. Mm. It takes a long time and you still go through a grieving process when you have a diagnosis for your child. And like I say, I constantly grieve. I constantly grieve what he can and can't do or what he can't be involved in or how hard it is to be involved in things. Mm. And now yeah. having Elsie, it's very clear what he misses out on. Yeah, it sounds like the, what you're more aware of now is the opportunities he's missing out on just to participate in, in things that other children his age do. Yes, especially being that Lloyd's nonverbal, nonmobile to an extent, like he's a wheelchair user and he can't stand by himself. He doesn't use a communication device as of yet and he has a severe intellectual disability. So having all of those together really creates a barrier to any engagement in the community without extensive help. Mm. Being by myself, it's quite difficult. I have a great community around me of friends and family and schools and all of that, but it doesn't mean it's any easier necessarily. Mm. Mm. You've, you talk about those supports you've got, you've got family and friends and, and you, you said your ex-husband is, is still really involved in the kids' lives. How else do you go about looking after yourself, Maya? So I started seeing a counsellor about two years ago and that was because I had a bit of a breakdown due to uh, a lot of events that were happening and it was during COVID, at the very beginning of COVID, which was very stressful for everyone and I had a brand new baby and all of that. But I didn't even start self-care until a year after that because I just couldn't break out of the grieving process for Lloyd, but also trying to enjoy a newborn while having issues in my relationship and not having my normal routine, one, due to COVID, two, because I was on maternity leave. Mm. I was kind of overwhelmed but bored at the same time. Yeah. You took the initiative to go and see someone and get some help to look after yourself. Yes. And so I still go to counselling, even just to word vomit and just like have a bit of a vent with someone that isn't in your immediate community or family that can sometimes just give you some validation if you need it or give you some tactics. Or I'm a very logical thinker. So just giving me some different ideas and ways to cope with things has been life changing. 
Yeah. I was also diagnosed with ADHD two years ago as well. So that was definitely a major stepping stone in being able to do self-care and understand the way that I think yeah. and the way that I process things compared to others. You're so wise, uh, Maya, to be thinking about self-care in that way. So you've got family and friends, but but getting some professional support as well. well what about just in daily life? Have you got other things in your life now that help you look after yourself? So... I'm not the usual self-care, you know, go have a shower or get your nails done or get your hair done. Yeah, it's definitely <laughs> thing about self-care, isn't it, that it's um, getting the, the thing that's right for you and what works with your routines and family life. Yes, and it's very hard trying to find something that works. So my mum lives with me at the moment and so I have the opportunity to go for a walk at night, which I might have had a really hectic week with work and I kind of usually just block out a day or even just for a few hours while Lloyd is at school and Alice is at daycare, just to, to go and walk or go to a movie or find a new cafe. Do, doing what you want to do. Yes. It's really, it's, it's still hard now though, even trying to find what works because it's not always the same thing. And I think people believe that, you know, you found your self-care thing, but it doesn't always work. Sometimes you need something less. Sometimes you need something more. It's always about filling your cup and knowing when you need it. Yeah, so you, you talk about it in terms of your level. So this is your level of filling filling your cup. Yeah. It. Yeah, so filling your cup, I suppose. So sometimes it can be, you know, overflowing and then that's when I find it very overwhelming, even general daily tasks, like getting yeah. to school on time. And then and I'm stressed that I'm not school on time. Yeah, yeah. And that's when you know you need to do more of these things like going for a walk at night or or um, finding a new cafe or whatever it might be. Yeah. Yeah, you've described that really nicely, Maya, and you say you're visual. You've made that visual for me too in terms of filling the cup. Maya, I know you use social media a lot. Yes. Can you tell us a bit about that, about how you're using Facebook and TikTok and Instagram? Because I, I know you use it both to get information but also to learn from other people. Tell, tell us what you're doing. Yes. So Facebook is my main social media outlet and I'm on many different local, national and international groups for various different things, business things, special need things, peer support groups, which I find very helpful in the fact that you can always go back to it. You can look at the group at 2am in the morning or you can have a chat with someone during the day or organise a catch-up, which is great. And I also have a page for Lloyd on Facebook called Lloyd's Life with IQSec2, which I initially created to keep my community, so my friends and family, up to date on Lloyd. And that was before he had a diagnosis because I was constantly asked, you know, what's going on? How's your week been? Who have you seen this week? And it's so overwhelming telling, you know, 10 to 20 people a week the same story. So I just started posting it on Facebook and posting how he got a stander or how he got a walker or just his little achievements or even the bad things. So when we're in hospital updating everyone, what's going on in hospital, which has really helped because then I don't have 7,000 messages going, can we come see you? What do you need? Yeah, yeah, that's a smart way to do it, isn't it? So you can kind of monitor the communication at times when you need to be more mindful of looking after yourself and Lloyd and Elsie. Yes, definitely. Like it's great to see family, but I usually limit it. But I also want people to sort of message me and make sure that everything's yeah. okay. 
Oh. Yeah, yeah. So Facebook's used to do all of that to share information, give people access to what's going on, and as you said, um, Lloyd's achievements, but also when when things are not going so well for him. Yes, definitely. Yeah, and it's just a good like when you get memories on Facebook and you can see how far he's come since you know, even a year ago. Yeah. Also in the other aspect of regression as well. So he's regressed in eating, but that helps me in determining what I need to tell the specialists or pediatrician as well. Mm-hmm. It's a good representation to specialist doctors, allied health of what was going on a year ago if they weren't in our yeah. like, like a diary. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what about, what about Instagram and TikTok? Yeah. So Instagram, I have a page for load as well. I'm actually I just generally post whatever I post on Facebook, on Instagram. Um, but TikTok, I've recently more so started. And one of my little videos went kind of viral, which is nice, which was a video of putting Lloyd in the wheelchair van. And we rallied and fundraised for a little while for the wheelchair van. So I just did a video that was actually aimed for Brendan to be able to put Lloyd in the wheelchair van while I had to go to a conference in the city. So I put it on TikTok so he could watch it from anywhere, anyone's phone. It was easily accessible instead of just sending it to him on Messenger. Or... Yeah, that's so clever. So it was a, a way of him learning how to do it. Yes, and I'm a very visual person and Brendan's quite visual as well. So instead of writing down what to do, it's easier to show. And there's quite a few steps to it as well. Same with you. Yeah, and you, you said that went viral. Um, is that because there's a lack of those sorts of videos for people about? Yes, there is a lack of videos such as the wheelchair van video. Mm -hmm. But videos are so packed full of information. You know when they say like a photo is worth more than a 1,000 words? A video is even more than that. But just educating people on also how intense or how difficult it can be travelling with a child or a person with a disability, especially in a wheelchair or any sort of mobility. And I had to find a carer who we absolutely adore. I had to specifically go out and said, I wanted a male and not that females couldn't do it, but it's hard for me. So I asked if a male or a female, I guess, worker that had a ute that would physically and be able to pick up Lloyd's wheelchair and put Lloyd in the car safely and we found our support worker, thankfully, but it was so hard. We can get a support worker, but we can't find one. Mm. So that took a while. So and you've now, got the, you mean you've got the funding for a support worker through the NDIS, but finding the right support worker is tough. Yes. And a lot of families have that just in general, trying to find a support worker that fits for them. Yeah. But yeah. ours was a different sort of scenario, just trying to find someone yes. physically fit enough and mm. that isn't going to injure themselves. Yeah. Um, to be able to do it. Sure. And that fit Lloyd as well. You can't just have one that can physically do everything and then not get along with Lloyd. Exactly. There's Lloyd's not- my typical five-year-old. He enjoys um, listening to Metallica and ACDC and Five Finger Death Punch and watching burnouts on YouTube. So he's a very boy boy. Um, <laughs> yeah, we had to find a support worker that matched that as well. So yeah, yeah. very difficult. <laughs> you know what I, I think when I hear all of this, Maya, is... You, you keep coming back to this thing about 
how important it is to have the things that are right for Lloyd and your family. It's got to be individualised. So really knowing Lloyd, knowing he's into Metallica is an ACDC is really important to knowing how to be with Lloyd and help with his learning and development and, and sort of participating in in daily life he definitely has his own little personality it's definitely shining through more and more yeah how lovely nice to hear all of that Maya. when we first met you said to me disability isn't scary it's cool why is it important to you to share that message with people love my little odd phrases that one stuck with me Maya. I, i was really interested in it I always try and find a positive aspect on everything as much as possible. And it's kind of like, you know, if you think about it and it's sad, it might make you cry. But if you think of something funny, it won't. But I also love learning about different subjects, different topics, different experiences. So whatever scenario it is, I try and pick one positive out of it. Because then you can focus on that, especially when you go through stages where it's really tough. Mm-hmm. But I feel like, yeah, if you pick one positive from every little situation, I think it's really imperative that not everything is 100% negative. Yeah. Like one yeah. little tiny positive, you know, picking a colour on a wheelchair or having a car park that's close to the door or we have a companion card so I can bring a carer to help me with Lloyd when we go to somewhere. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's a real hard mind shift to do that. Yeah, that mind shift you've you've talked about quite a lot today about shifting things into positives either by doing things that you like doing together as a family or you looking after you talked about your self care but finding what's was you say cool in it or or what's um, what's the good stuff about all of this. You know, the other thing that's really struck me, Maya, is you say you like learning and it's really evident you're such a keen learner. (laughs) Yeah. Always learning, always researching. Yeah, yeah. I just wanted to add in as well that a major impact of this whole journey and continuing journey is peer support. So Mm. I don't think I would have been able to do half the things without half the community around me. And that's excluding friends and family. My peer support, I'm going to say mostly through SWAN or syndromes that are named, being that Lloyd's got a rare genetic condition, finding families who often help find the positive in things as well um, of families that have rare genetic conditions or children with rare genetic conditions because they're going through the same journey completely differently but the same journey, especially through diagnostic odysseys and so on. But that definitely helps you through a lot of the bad days especially. Yeah, yeah. Thanks for sharing that. The peer support's so critical, isn't it? And um, you're getting through Swan, as you said, and, and, and other other places. But there's a lot of support organisations available and people can find out more about that through the Association for Children with a Disability that you mentioned. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Maya, is there anything else that you'd like to share with us before we finish up? Just that I'm very thankful and grateful that... I've been included in, in this process and now able to share my experience being from a young mum perspective, rare genetic perspective, and just a parent with a child with a disability and a mum with young kids. So I'm just very thankful that you guys interview people and have a podcast that people can listen to and lessen isolation of families that are going through all different journeys. Maya, we're, we're very thankful to you. Um, you've shared so much with us today and it's been a really great conversation and I've learned a lot from listening to you about um, a whole range of issues but 
This conversation has been really terrific. So thank you so much, Maya. Thank you. When Maya and I chatted after recording this podcast, she talked with me about the need for professionals to assume competence of parents. I was interested in that phrase because it fits so well with the principles outlined in the National Early Childhood Intervention Best Practice Guidelines. The guidelines highlight concepts like family-centred and strength-based practices that are based on an understanding that parents know their child best and have valuable information and insights from professionals to learn from. Throughout the podcast, Maya said that when things worked well, she had a respectful and trusting relationship with professionals. I guess it's the same with all strong relationships. Trust and respect go a long way, and assuming each other's competence helps build that trust and respect. This is just one of the things that makes peer support and community champions work so well. The mutual trust and respect built in part through shared experiences. Maya talked about her involvement in Syndromes Without a Name, or SWAN, and also the Association for Children with a Disability, or ACD. You can find out more about these supports from Children and Young People with Disability Australia, often referred to as CIDA. Thanks for listening. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Early Childhood Intervention Family Voices. Make sure you subscribe on your podcast app and feel free to leave a review to help us gain more understanding of what type of conversations are helpful to you. More information about this podcast can be found on ekiavik.org.au. Until next time, thank you for listening. Listening.